0: This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts.
1: All right. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast covering all things on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Vaden, and I am here today with IHS Markets Head of America's Refining, Devnil Chowdhury. How are you, Devnil?
2: Hey, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me.
1: Good. So this is, uh, just to disclose to all the listeners, this is our second day in a row trying to record this podcast. Yesterday, we had I think we tried to record two or three times and Wi-Fi or Teams or whatever you want to call it shut down on us too many times that we just gave up. So that the wind was not at our back yesterday. And so hopefully today goes a little bit better and I'm sure it will.
2: Yeah, yeah. Hopefully you could do this in the studio one day at uh our office. Uh once uh restrictions get, get less uh stringent. Yeah.
1: And we, I mean, so for for other kind of background information, Devin and I used to be down the hall from each other in an office that we went to every day, and uh, it was a very normal world. And that office, uh, I guess, we, we moved to a different office and, and see each other less on different floors. And now here we are in separate homes, uh, looking at each other in a two dimensional, <laughs> two dimensional environment. Yeah. We are here today to talk about uh, the the changing face of uh, refining um, and really looking at it from the context or, or from the perspective of refining as traditional energy infrastructure and evolving into a low carbon or cleaner energy environment and kind of what that means for traditional oil and gas and for traditional oil and gas infrastructure. And devnil has been doing a lot of work with, with his team on this. Um, and I guess one, one of the more interesting places to, to start, I think, Devnil, if you could talk a little bit about some of the incentives and the executive compensation stuff that, that you've been looking into and just to kind of set the context. You know, I, I did a lot of work years ago looking at, you know, the, the shale sector and um, all of the upstream as investor capital was reluctant to go into that. And one of the first things that changed was the executive compensation and some of the
2: yeah, yeah, so I think, uh, in the past few years, specifically, there's actually been quite a bit of change in the downstream industry and specifically in refining. Um, if you go back 1015 years ago, you never would have seen some of the things that are being implemented today within the compensation structure for a lot of the executives. So, um, some of the refining companies in the United States, specifically, are having a lot of their um, restricted stock units and how they're getting their bonuses dependent on various kind of energy transition and ESG targets. You know, there's been some companies that are tying it directly to a company's publicly announced uh, greenhouse gas emission reduction goals. We've seen some that pay greater bonuses depending on if those goals are met or less, if they fall short. Um, We've seen some companies actually put in metrics as to how much capital is being spent on low-carbon projects versus Mm -hmm. kind of total available budget for the kind of existing capital spend. So big changes. I think... um, Last year at the virtual annual AFPM meeting, which is the American fuels and petrochemical manufacturers, that's you know one of the big organizations that, that serves kind of the downstream industry in the U.S., it was one of the first times where I saw a lot of panels on ESG scores, carbon reduction projects, et cetera, right? So this is kind of a, a pivot as to what the industry has been doing the past 20, 30 years.
1: And where I mean, would you call this the norm over the past one or two years or has it been longer or or is it still a group of outlying companies that are prioritizing this
2: i think most of the publicly traded companies now are definitely speaking about this topic and a lot of it has to do with their ability to fund future projects and and how they're the people that fund the projects many of the banks and the Mm -hmm. investment banks that Um, have, have set out and mentioned specifically that energy transition, ESG scores, carbon reduction is an important part of their decision on who they're funding in the future, right? So a lot of this is being driven by the ability for them to raise funds in the future, plus regulations from both the US government and European governments on carbon reduction specifically. And would you consider
1: proactive or or reactive because they've actually had a hard time raising capital? Um, Or or is it proactive in the sense that they they don't want to get to that point? I mentioned the shale sector a little while ago that they got to the point of, you know, you you couldn't get investors' attention. It was more reactive than proactive.
2: I think this is, at this point, it's more proactive because there are, honestly, when you look at the refining sector today, there really are not too many obvious major capital projects to be done currently because of the kind of the the whole outlook we have for demand and supply in, in the U.S. as a whole, right? So it's pretty clear that we are close to or reaching a peak of refined products need from the U.S. and North America specifically. So I think it's really being driven more by the companies themselves, is what I would say. It's not just Pressure from banks. I mean, nobody is, is forcing it. And the reason I'm saying that is that there's not specifically carbon emission reduction goals specifically directed at individual companies today, right? Like these are mm-hmm. scope, scope to emission goals that are kind of being set forth by the companies individually. And what those numbers are really depends on their, their capital mix and their current kind of you know, plans to. For investments to basically keep their existing businesses going but also expand into things like biofuels and carbon sequestration etc right so the government right now with the exception of california and a few other states there are LCFSs being discussed which are putting additional pressure on refiners but if you look at for example the um carbon and
1: lcfs is low yeah. carbon fuel low
2: carbon fuel standards yes so but if you look specifically at where a large number of refinery sit within Texas and Louisiana, there are no state-level LCFS goals being discussed. And you actually see many of the companies that operate in those regions are still discussing reduction of emissions, scope one, scope two. They're looking at CCS projects. There's no governmental regulatory issues, and they honestly haven't at this point yet faced difficulties raising funding for their projects, but I think it's more they're trying to get ahead of them. of of that problem.
1: And are you seeing management at an asset by asset basis, depending somewhat perhaps on where that asset is located, or or is it done at a portfolio or a corporate level?
2: Yeah, so they are looking at asset by asset, right? So there are specific global companies that have pulled out of the US refining market, for example, right? Because when you look at a company that is integrated with upstream, downstream, and chemicals, um, some of the big emitters are really refineries with large FCC units, right? So mm-hmm. a way for them to reduce emissions is to sell off a refining asset, for example, right that that might not be in their long-term portfolio. So we've seen a couple of of large integrated upstream downstream chemical companies recently over the years in the u s. really step away from refining. They've reduced their capacity. they've sold, asset, shutdown assets, et cetera, right? And then they're still operating in other regions, though, or other... And
1: who's... Is it NOCs and private equity, or are they the buyer?
2: Um, No, I mean, some of them are outright. Uh, Some of them are NOCs, like, for example, um, if you look at, you know, Boat Shell and Exxon Mobil, they have sold off, you know, specific refineries that didn't fit their long-term plans. Um, Exxon sold a few of their assets to companies like PBF. Shell mm-hmm. um, shut down their convent refinery, sh- sold their JV uh, 100% a Deer Park to Pemex. Um, That's the sold, ironic
1: one, right? Yeah. Pictures yeah. of the Texas
2: Revolution on the infrastructure that now exactly. Pemex owns. But, but um, you know, the, the, these refineries that were shut down probably um, needed to be shut down with a lot of the changes we're seeing on demand with the pandemic. And some of the refineries that were sold were actually pretty good assets too, right? That actually do have a future. It's just, they might not have fit the specific portfolio that, you know, some of the companies I mentioned were, were looking at uh, being in for the long term, right?
1: Yeah. Um, so, I, but before we get into the, some of the sellers, I mean, if we're looking at it from the buyer's perspective, do we see perhaps a delay, but but are, are, the, are the refining assets going to move in that? more innovative, cleaner environment, or does that quality emissions problem exist indefinitely in the hands of a non-investor owned company?
2: I think we'll get to a point to where a lot of people will say that they're going to reduce scope one and scope two emissions.
1: And scope one is?
2: Scope one is local kind of refinery emissions from combustion. And running things like a fluid catalytic cracker and and CO2 leaving the unit specifically, and local emissions to the refinery. And scope two Mm. are emissions that might not take place at the refinery. So electricity, for example, if you have a coal-fired power plant, you know, emitting CO2, but it's It's not within the refinery gates, it's still considered a scope two emission attributable to the refinery because they're using electricity from that plant, right? So unless there is actual regulations around this, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to see some of these plants and CCS hubs and projects move forward. If you look at why we have penetration of ethanol into the the gasoline pool, why we have biodiesel and renewable diesel penetrating to the diesel pool, and why we've had success with other forms of carbon reduction it's because there's a government subsidy and some type of help that allows the ROI to move forward, right? So mm-hmm. uh, a lot of this right now is is talk, discussions. There are some final investment decisions, FIDs kind of taking place, but it's relatively early in this period of actually deploying technology within the refinery to reduce carbon specifically, right? So we are not seeing widespread announcements we're seeing a, announcements around ccs hubs mm-hmm. are we seeing refiners discussing projects to reduce co2 emissions from fcc units with fluid ca- catalytic cracking units within a refinery right are they are they publicly sharing that they're going to install fcc amine scrubbers for off gas you know coming off of the uh, fcc units reformers hydrocrackers etc right so I think it's still some time for that to happen, but going back to my earlier point, the compensation structure for a lot of Mm -hmm. the executives of these companies are now being set up to where they get higher bonuses and higher numbers of RSUs, depending on if they're spending more money on low carbon projects.
1: And you mentioned that the forecast for product output is rolling over over the next however long you know to 10 20 years Mm -hmm. um where where does the sector see growth um if traditional fuels is rolling over in in the idea that we think it will be
2: yeah so really there are two kind of key growth markets for the u.s and north american refining industry over the next decade or so and as gasoline demand Really starts to fall due to increased penetration of electric vehicles, hybrids, mm-hmm. flex fuel vehicles, and higher penetration rates of ethanol. We need to find a new home for those molecules that resemble gasoline. And the US refining industry, why why don't they just shut down completely if demand is falling? The reason we don't see that happening is we still have an advantage with crude supply relatively abundant crude supply in the US. And more importantly, we have very low cost natural gas, which helps the utility costs and variable costs associated with the refinery in the US Gulf Coast to be much lower than what we see in Europe and Asia and other regions in Latin America. So we don't expect those things to change much to where the US would lose its kind of competitive advantage, right? So that's kind of Step one as, as to why we don't have runs falling. So, what do we have refiners doing to react to the declining gasoline demand? I think number one is naphtha, specifically, is still needed as a petrochemical feedstock globally, right? So, um, when you look at GDP el- elasticity and how gasoline demand, specifically, is tied to GDP, it's been disconnecting. Um, over the past 20 to 30 years because of fuel efficiency gains, right? So GDP grows at a certain multiple and gasoline has been continuously falling off of that multiple from GDP, right? But naphtha demand and petrochemical demand has stayed locked into GDP and we expect it to continue to stay locked into GDP. So what that means is there is a home still for those molecules that are, are in that part of the barrel of crude, which are naphtha gasoline types of barrels. And, and what we see happening is investments in terminals to export naphtha to Asia, continuing petrochemical plants being built in Asia, et cetera, right? Um, so that's kind of step one. Step two is around um, ethanol plants specifically, and really to serve two of the major growth markets. We actually still think that diesel fuel and jet fuel will continue to grow through. And stay relatively flat through most of the long term in the the US specifically. So, you have this disconnect between diesel and jet. So, yield is going to shift more towards diesel, jet, and naphtha over the long term. And one thing for jet is there is technology being deployed right now that will allow ethanol to be used as a feedstock to produce um, sustainable aviation fuels, SAF, that kind of over the the uh, longer term as well. And and that's one way to basically redeploy ethanol plants that will not be needed as much in a in a future with less gasoline demand rate.
1: And where's, and sorry for my ignorance on this, where's the end market for naphtha?
2: So the end market for naphtha, some of it is in the U.S. already, right? It's being used as a gasoline blend component. It's being used as diluent for Canadian crude. So we ship naphtha in the form of natural gasoline up to Canada so they can Ship us back their their crude as a diluent.
1: Um, that seems like it, a shrinking market.
2: Yeah, yeah, Canadian crude. I mean, we still think there's some growth there happening over the next decade or so. But you know, when you go out to 2050, there is some some pressure on the Canadian crude, crude production once you go that far out. Um, but over the next decade or so, the Canadian production story is, is that we still have you know pipelines coming that. Allow product to flow both south into the US and west to to Asia, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's that's one source, but really longer term, the two bigger demand sinks are naphtha cracking within the US, which is kind of under pressure because we have so much ethane um, available here. And because we have so much ethane available, the next logical step is to export it to Asia. And Asia will take that naphtha and crack it for their petrochemical ethylene and propylene demand needs specifically, right? And so that's really where we see kind of the future of the US Gulf Coast refiners really shifting yield over to NAPFA. And there is not too many ways to do this in kind of a low carbon world, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. so chem plants and the the entire process of cracking uh, for petrochemical production is something that there probably needs to be some new technology deployed to to really reduce carbon emissions from from those crackers because it is a, a combustion process.
1: And how, so, so the other one you mentioned was sustainable aviation. And I guess before we get into that, what, when, when you're looking at kind of the, I guess the blend of output today and if the, the, the gasoline is under pressure and there's opportunity in naphtha and uh, ethanol, what percentage, is this 50%? Twenty percent I mean what what percentage of the output are we talking about in aggregate?
2: no, we're talking about much less than that um, okay south south of fifteen percent sustainable aviation fuels over the long term which which is pretty significant, but you know it's it's not going to take over the entire pool, but we are seeing all the major airlines in the u s and kind of globally a lot of large carriers talk about wanting to use more sustainable aviation fuel, right so it, it kind of makes logical sense where if you have an asset right now, an ethanol plant that is designed to produce ethanol for the gasoline transportation industry, their on-road transportation industry, and that is an industry that you see falling, that you would redeploy these plants, um, invest in ethanol to SAF technologies, right? And then the problem is that most of the ethanol plants in the U.S. are in the Midwest. Because okay. that's where the feedstock is, so you would really? have to ship some of that Saf to some of the major airports uh, across the world. But today, if you look at ethanol, there's not really much ethanol pipeline infrastructure. Most of it is sent via um rail today. So it, it would be a kind of a similar supply chain where you'd be railing SAF to different airports versus um, being able to pipe it pipe it. To is them.
1: there the same backlash on ethanol pipeline as there would be on a crude pipeline? Is it? It's the idea that it's impossible
2: to permit. It's most likely um, there's a few ethanol pipelines in the U.S. Not to not many, not nowhere near to the extent of gasoline and diesel and jet fuel. Mainly because the ethanol industry came to fruition in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, and that's when it was harder to, you know, became a little bit more difficult environmentally to build new pipelines. Right, so that's why. If you were to see this really develop, you would need to see kind of the redevelopment of existing pipelines, maybe some of the pipelines for gasoline specifically that because gasoline demand is falling so much could be mm-hmm. used for things like SAF, but they're just not in the places where the ethanol plants are specifically, right? So you might eventually rail it to a terminal close to Houston or you know some of the major refining hubs within the U.S. and then... You know, maybe re-designate a gasoline pipeline to something that's more distillate oriented and then use that pipeline, for example, right? Um, but most refined product pipelines can easily be converted to the other products like Colonial, for example, uses, you know, multiple products going through the pipeline, right? So.
1: Okay. And is that, I mean, in, in terms of the investment and the timeline for that, if, if... Ethanol for, for use in automobiles, you know, I had kind of a 20 year window to it before we start seeing declines. Is sustainable aviation, are we looking at a similar compression or, or is it even a faster compression?
2: There's a significant piece of the airline fleet that is up for retirement at this point, right? And that's why you've seen all of the large airlines in the US, United, for example, they've announced you know, plans to have um, a specific fleet of hypersonic jets that are running full sustainable aviation fuels kind of by the end of the decade, right? So Mm -hmm. we don't have a whole lot on the full specs of SAF today and whether it's a perfect drop in fuel for certain models of planes. But I think that's going to be a big thing to watch as to how successful it is, right? Because the reason ethanol... E10, E15 has been relatively successful is that it has a fleet that can accept it now, right? So most vehicles prior to that were built after 2001 or two can now take E10, E15. So that's that's going to be important for SAF over the long term. We have planes that actually absorb it and use
1: it. And how about the emissions that come from that and the environmental impact is that better is that better than what you're getting from jet today
2: so if you think about the emissions of jet fuel specifically produced in a refinery mm-hmm. in the in the Gulf Coast you are running crude oil you know you're running your crude tower and various other units to produce that that jet fuel right whereas if you go the ethanol to SAF route and especially Um, Their Valero and Navigator are working on a uh, CCS hub for their specific plants to tie into within the Midwest. Um, You have a pretty low carbon uh, supply chain there, right? Because you're using a biofeed stock, you're using corn for that in all production. And on the emission side of things, you can send your carbon to a CCS hub specifically, right? So it's a pretty if you, if you kind of compare to the traditional form of producing jet fuel it is probably a little bit uh, less carbon intense.
1: Okay so then if we're we're looking out call it 10-20 years or whatever where, where do you see the, the growth drivers that, that if, if ethanol if, if jet is a small percentage of the total makeup today it sounds like it would have to more than you know grow it would have to grow about an absurd degree to, to be to, to to be a real growth engine, right? It may cover some of the declining business, but it's not going to grow the business.
2: So there is going to be pressure on US crude runs because of everything I kind of laid out, right? Like mm-hmm. we expect continued rationalization in the United States longer term. You know, right now we're running about 17 to 18 million barrels a day of crude. We could see that settle between 10 and 12 million barrels a day, depending on which one of our forecasts you our scenarios but you know from a base case perspective between 10 and 12 by 2050 so there's a significant amount of refinery rationalization or conversions to biofuel um, happening and most of that is going to be really in the east coast of the us and which already has seen runs almost fall by 50 percent over the last 20 years Um, and also specifically on the west coast of the US. But eventually, even the Midwest and the Gulf Coast are not immune to this, but it's just further out in the forecast where those regions really need to start worrying about it. And another thing we haven't talked about is trade specifically. So the US sends a significant portion of its production to Latin America today because Latin America has not been able to produce fuels to meet their own needs for really since the the decline of Venezuela. Right, Uh, Brazil had intentions of building new refining capacity, which were kind of derailed by the recession and Mm -hmm. fraud and other things that are very publicly known today. Mexico, over the past several years, uh, the last decade, has had difficulty running their refineries reliably as well. So these these dynamics have opened up that market for the US refiners as well. We expect those volumes to remain even if Mexico and Brazil and Venezuela get their act together and can run more reliably because there's the drivers of demand destruction in the US are not prevalent in Latin America. It's much their EV um, forecast are are um, expectations of battery electric vehicle deployment in Latin America is a lot slower than it is in, in, in okay. the US, right? And then the second market that we are not really sending much to today is Africa, and we still see very strong growth in West Africa for refined products versus their ability to, to build new plants. Dangote refinery is one new refinery that's being built, um, but that's Probably not going to be enough to to basically keep Africa not see net imports increase, right? So, uh, Africa is going to be very important for the US refiner as well to clear its barrels, right? But net net, even after everything I described increasing jet fuel and diesel demand, increasing exports to Africa, Latin America, Asia for naphtha it still is not enough to. Um, to not see some shutdowns here over the next 30 years.
1: And is there a high degree of confidence on some of these emerging market uh to demand scenarios? I think about cell phones in Africa, which jumped the landline, right? That, that there was no landline rollout. And it doesn't seem in, totally improbable for the same thing to happen with cars and electric vehicles to, you know, almost flip a switch, no pun intended, and jump the demand growth for automobiles
2: yeah it definitely is a uh, potential option there right but but they would need to in some form or fashion they're need to they're going to need to either invest in imports from the u s if you think of it as a thermodynamics problem and you're looking at it as an energy balance right mm-hmm. if they're not going to if they do do that let's just say they go to a full electric fleet skip out on gasoline vehicles and most Africans' first cars, let's just say they end up being electric vehicles, right? Okay. We're, we still will need the power infrastructure to really serve that entire supply chain, right? Like so just like today, um, you know, I own an electric vehicle, I plug in at night, but I have a home that has a garage, I installed a Tesla charger in it, and that's worked out for me, right? But in Africa, the cost of that specific infrastructure is is still pricey, right? Like to right and we're not seeing we're seeing a lot of inroads on the cost of battery technology and the manufacturers are reducing the overall price of electric vehicles but we haven't seen that yet on the charging side of things either right so i mean my 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 charger all in was about $1000 installed right so mm-hmm. i mean if you think of that in the per capita gdp in in a in a continent like africa it's a pretty high number right so
1: yeah um, I don't know. I may take the other side of that. that
2: yeah, yeah.
1: The Americans can subsidize, you know, that, that they can develop a model that, uh, uh, you know, Americans and Europeans can subsidize uh, the infrastructure and uh, emerging economies. And yeah, and uh, you're, solar you're, can, uh, decentralized power, it could, could maybe so- solve a lot of those problems.
2: Yeah. And you're bringing up some really good points. I mean, these are all things that would really derail the US refiner even more so, right? If Africa doesn't grow, as, as much as we're hoping for if Latin America doesn't grow or continue to grow, if there's any kind of big assumptions that we've made that don't come to fruition. I mean, another big one is actually what I stated earlier, which is the GDP mm-hmm. elasticity of chemicals demand, right? If there's ever wide-scale recycling programs, regulations to reduce plastic straws and other things, if that actually spreads globally and we see ethylene and propylene demand fall accordingly and start to break off of GDP then we don't have a home for that NAPTA either right and then we see even greater shutdowns in, in the u s refining industry <laughs> so
1: so both of us live in Houston uh, and, and a lot of the Houston uh you know discussion here is around the traditional energy infrastructure and all all the pipelines that come through and around Houston all the proximity of some uh, similar finding and information and the potential of specifically hydrogen and CCS. I mean, do, do we, um, are you seeing inroads there? Is it still discussion and PowerPoint presentations or, or are people act- actually kind of putting money to work in this space? And, and is there a, you know, are, are we seeing kind of downstream evolve to, to meet that world?
2: Yeah, um, I would say the Europeans are a little bit ahead of us as far as actual. FID projects where they're building green and blue hydrogen conversion projects, right? But Houston and the U.S. Gulf Coast, if you, if you kind of count Corpus Christi, mm-hmm. Beaumont, um, Port Arthur, and uh, New Orleans, et cetera, kind of is one giant energy producing center. It has a unique advantage over kind of the rest of the world, where you have so many assets so close to each other. And I mean, that's that's kind of why the ExxonMobil hub makes a lot of sense because it can serve so many assets because it's the footprint. There's so many refineries along the Houston ship channel, right? That's a $100 million
1: so- ship channel idea.
2: Exactly, right? And you can build just one hub or a few hubs and tie in you know, between 40 to 60% of your refinery capacity into that, right? That's why I think when you look at how this develops over the next 30 or 40 years, I'm pretty confident that the US Gulf Coast will probably be the leader in actual deployment of a lot of this technology because it's just, it makes sense. It's just the footprint is so close to each other, right? But we would need, I think the industry would need some, a little bit more clarity on subsidies and the cost Mm -hmm. specifically, right? To decide whether or not these ROIs make sense and I think that's really what's happening in the industry now is in Europe it is relatively easy to calculate the cost of carbon right they have metrics and programs kind right. of designed to allow that really to be calculated easily whereas within the US it's not as easily defined today right like so if, if I were to say what is the ROI of a CCS project within you know the Gulf Coast or within the Midwest, a lot of it is still dependent on assumptions around government policy, right? So it's 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 hard right now in, in that aspect to say. But I think with where we are today, these things are on the the cusp of making sense, right? That's why we're discussing this these topics right. today. And that's why a lot of the executives are having these metrics tied into their salaries because it forces them to look and it forces them to look at whether or not these projects make sense, right? Um, is
1: that think, is policy slash price of carbon is that the major hurdle right now? Is the technology there and the capital there that, that if, if people can just have a little bit more certainty around what that environment looks like technology uh policy-wise, then I, things move I, forward?
2: The technology is, is getting there. I mean, green hydrogen and blue hydrogen, um, when you're looking at scope to emissions specifically, that's, that's there exists today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, when you look at the CCS hubs, I mean, it is a very large project, right? Like there would need to be new pipelines built, there'd be there's geological aspects of projects like those. So they're not easy projects to deploy, but the technology used in them are not particularly complicated or things that the, the industry cannot do today, right? When it comes to the actual technologies at the refineries, that's where you start getting into some of these are still in pilot plant stage, right? Mm-hmm. They're trying to find the most capital efficient way of reducing carbon from individual refinery units, right? And That's where a lot of research dollars are being spent today is, you know, something might work well on a lab scale, but then when you try to scale it up, it's just the capital costs don't overcome the incentive that a refiner would get for a project like that, which right now is just not even defined, right? So
1: that's
2: why I, I kind of think that this is going to be very difficult for some of these execs, where they have a specific amount of their budget that needs to be spent on low carbon projects. And because of the uncertainty around the cost of carbon, they're going to be pushed really to do some of the more traditional projects like renewable diesel, biodiesel projects, SAF, things that have already been deployed over the past decade, right? And I think they're going to be a little weary at first of spending capital on these other types of carbon projects because there's not regulatory guidance fully developed yet like there is in Europe here in the US.
1: So maybe, you know, just last two questions and we can wrap up. but. Given what you see today, I mean, do you expect, I guess two questions. One, do you expect the innovation to be led uh, in the U.S. or or Europe? Um, And it sounds perhaps like Europe might might be your answer. And then two, is the innovation going to come from the refiners themselves or is it going to come from a vendor who understands that the execs are incentivized to spend money on new technology and want to sell into that vendor or want to sell into that finder?
2: I think the technology itself will be globally developed. It will be developed at universities. It will be developed within the U.S., within Europe, Asia. There's everyone. Not
1: is, Silicon Valley or, or one of the traditional innovators?
2: No, not, not maybe some startups in Silicon Valley, but I really think the technology that I'm specifically discussing to reduce emissions within a refinery are going to be developed by the technology providers for the refining industry, right? Like, so the, the UOP Honeywells, the Wendys okay. the various uh, companies that are within that space today, right? And if you look at some of the technology providers and the direction they're going with, um, you know, kind of how they are deploying capital themselves on R&D budgets, a lot mm-hmm. of it is for energy transition technology now, right? It's not as much there, there's a percentage of that going to energy transition and not as much going to kind of traditional optimization technologies, et cetera. Right.
1: Okay. And does the exec comp if they have to spend the CapEx on low carbon technology, does the technology have to work for them to get their bonuses or they just have to spend the money on well-intended technology? No,
2: so so it's very specific where they have to spend more money on low carbon projects as long as those projects meet or exceed the co- the company's kind of minimum return on invested capital right so they still okay. have their minimum return internally so let's say a company has an internal minimal re- minimum return of 15% as a requirement to move forward on a mm-hmm. capital project right they would need that to be there so they would do all their internal work and you know look at you know everything i kind of discussed earlier And if they deployed some of that capital towards those projects and not just 100% towards um, a traditional refinery project, then they would get a higher amount of bonus or RSUs.
1: Okay. All right, well, lots of moving parts.
2: Yeah. But that's why I said it's such a hard calculation to make, because for a lot of these projects, you don't have the data you need to decide if it's going to be a 15% ROI or not. Right. Cause it's the, the the market itself is not defined right so you're kind of running scenarios and hoping that, that that it works out to where it meets their um minimal uh return on invested capital
1: all right well there's uh this has been very interesting and I think there's uh, a lot more to discuss as we move down the line on this but but let's uh let us wrap up for now yeah um, and, and I hope I know I've enjoyed it I hope you've had fun and I hope we can do this again
2: yeah yeah hopefully uh... It'll be very interesting to watch how this industry develops over the next 10 years.
1: Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Devon. Thanks.
0: To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com energyblog You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com.
1: This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit IHSmarket.com energy. That's IHSMARKIT.com forward slash energy.